0: I'm a quick-witted rock star.
1: Welcome back. It's episode 144 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, coming to you, as we always do, in the faculty lounge of the Epstein and U School of Law. We've been here long enough now that you can no longer see the residue of the sign indicating that it used to be a Kmart. I'm your host, Troy Senek former White House speechwriter and co-founder of Kite and Key Media. Go check that out, or I'm never going to be able to quit my side hustle in that mariachi band. And I am joined, as always, by the Lewis and Clark of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein. Yes. (laughs) It's not a roll call, Richard. Just let me get through the, the introduction. The Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And John Yu, okay, I just wanted to pause in case John wanted to check in, visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. Present. (laughs) Well done, sir. So, fellas, um, this is our second shot at the show. We tried it yesterday, but we could not compete with the— Construction sounds coming from John's palatial new Bay Area estate. I'm assuming they were building one of those human chessboards in the back garden, like you're some sort of Mughal emperor. But no, 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 not at all. They were building my panic room. What are you talking
2: about? It has to have you know, refrigeration for the year of food plus gut ports, like little holes, so I can shoot out. I, I can't think plus of a man. Vault.
1: I can't think of a man less in need of a panic room, John. You So preternaturally undisturbed are you. Panic is an emotion that I cannot graft onto your face. I don't know what that would look like. Oh,
2: I actually wouldn't be scared, but I just thought that was the nom de gura of these little places. (laughs) Well, this is
1: interesting. So
2: Everybody knows that I've stockpiled Campbell's soup and McRibs, so they're going to come to
1: my house first when the earthquake. This is the problem with announcing these details of your personal life for 10 years over the internet. But this does bring it bring up an interesting point, which is that you've you've both been in the uh, real estate market recently. So Richard's also getting ready to move into a new place in Connecticut. And so the reason I brought up that we had a, a false start on this with the previous iteration of this show, when we were doing it, attempting to do it, I asked you both yesterday what the coolest keepsake we'd see if we were to take a tour of your house was. And you guys, and I mean no offense by this, gave me the lamest possible answers. Richard mentioned a clock, John mentioned a snow globe, so I, I'm going to come at this from a different angle today. Wait, wait. Thank before God.
2: you ask your question, what do you have? What is your most awesome memento in that little shoebox in Manhattan you live in?
1: Well, it's not in there, it's but crazy. in my in the home that I had in Nashville. This is now actually in storage, but this is um, this is probably low rent. Like if you're senior staff in the White House, you probably don't even bother with these. But if you were a little further down the totem pole, as I was, I was a speechwriter, but a fairly new one. Uh, you get a flight certificate when you go on Air Force One. So I have my Air Force One flight certificate on the wall in my office. Oh, it's not bad, big right? Deal.
2: Big deal. It's like, isn't that just a seven forty seven in drag? Yours was that snow globe. I mean, come gun. on, I've been on a nuclear submarine, an aircraft carrier,
1: same a Black same. Hawk helicopter. I haven't done
2: that. I wanted to get in an Abrams tank and fire the main gun, but. At that, at that point, I think General McMaster
1: issued a command decision to block me.
0: <laughs> and <laughs> rightly so. Um, so
1: this is, the, this is the angle I'm going to attempt today. Okay, if so I w- I've
0: been on a merry-go-round. <laughs> I don't know I was that I, I'm on one now and I, like I can off.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, fellas, if I were to look through your library at home, what is the book that I would be most surprised to find on the shelf? Richard. I'll start with you. I
0: don't know. I mean, probably one of my baseball books, but, you know, you've always known I've liked baseball. Um, I do have Barack Obama's book, whatever the first one was called. Is it signed? What?
1: Is it signed? You, you uh, knew him I around knew- that time?
0: Uh, no, he did not sign it. I think my wife got it. And I think I did read some of it. And the book basically as follows, the Republicans say A, B, and C, but I'm a Democrat, so therefore D, E, and F are true
1: real intellectual exercise. John, what would be on your shelf? What would surprise us?
2: Well, you should also ask, because I, I want to say I've got my favorite book and then the most surprising book. So my favorite okay. book, it was a gift from a friend of mine, and it's a a multi-volume set of Abraham Lincoln's collected works by uh, that was put together by his um, two secretaries at the time. Uh, one that people may rec- recognize him, John Hay, who I think later became Secretary of State, but he yes, was- he you know like the he was like the speech writer secretary all the stuff wrapped up into Troy's job and many other's people's job for Lincoln so they put out this really nice looking set of Lincoln's collected works so someone gave me that and then i think the book i would have thought richard would say something like this too i think the book that i have on my bookshelf right now i'm looking at it is the my um uh marks engels reader i have that book too <laughs> yeah i have thought you read would say it something like that i've read that book so here's Absolutely. something my, um, my uh, professor of political theory uh, said, in which he said, the reason I'm assigning you the reader and not actually Das Kapital is that Marx was so confused, he never finished any of his damn books. And so <laughs> you got to have it, the best way to read it is in a reader because he could never really work out all the problems he had.
0: That's no surprise there. I spent a lot of time reading Marx when I was in college. I read the German Ideology. I read the 1844 manuscripts. Um, I read a lot of that stuff. I mean... Uh, And of course, you read the Communist Manifesto. Uh, In retrospect, it's so utterly juvenile, you wonder what all the fuss was about, but it did come out in 1848 when there was a lot of unrest and rebellion in France and so forth, so it certainly was propitious. He is a rather overrated thinker, uh, but that doesn't mean he wants for influence. How is that for an original assessment, Mr. You? (laughs)
1: i I liked your more concise review earlier It was hard to see what all the fuss was about that you need to put that on amazon (laughs) well i mean yes i
0: mean then that could be canceled right (laughs)
1: um all right fellas so we got a lot to get to actually it's kind of an interesting news cycle different than the ones that we've had for most of the past four years um let me me start on capitol hill there's this really interesting fight brewing Over this woman, uh, Marionette Miller-Meeks, she's the freshman Republican congresswoman from the 2nd District of Iowa. And she won a very close race there in November, won by only six votes. The Democrat that she defeated, who's a woman named Rita Hart, is challenging the outcome of that election. She said that there were ballots that were thrown out improperly that could have given her the margin of victory. And, you know, vote totals get challenged in court pretty regularly. But this fight is not happening in the judicial branch. This has been brought before the House Administration Committee. And there is a possibility that House Democrats, if they vote as a block, because they only have an eight-seat majority in the House, which is why the stakes here are so high, they could uh, remove Marionette Miller-Meeks, God help us, that name, and seat Rita Hart. So, John, I I will start with you here. How So the outcome of this election was was certified under Iowa law. Uh, Triple M, as I'm going to call her from here on out, has been a a member of Congress for a couple of months now, has cast votes. Uh, Moreover, Rita Hart, the challenger, did not even exhaust all her options in court before this election was certified. So how is it possible that Democrats in the House could conceivably be sort of the judges in their own case here? Walk us through the mechanics of this.
2: And this is something that's in the Constitution. It's in Article 1, Section 5. Article 1, Section 5 says, uh, quote, Each house shall be the judge of the elections, returns, and qualifications of its own members, unquote. So because of that provision, the house has from time to time, rarely, but from time to time, it has chosen not to uh, recognize the election of some new member. Uh, And uh, as some pointed out there, sort of between the civil war and 1900, this was done a lot actually for partisan reasons where uh, I say democratic house would reject maybe half dozen uh, or so newly elected Republicans and then vice versa when the power changed. So the house is allowed to, you know, Judge that the election or returns of uh, one of its members were uh, was illegitimate, and as far as I know uh, the Supreme Court has never really claimed the right to review uh, whether the House has abused that elections return now what the what the Supreme Court has done is said that the house can't add anything onto elections returns and qualifications, so if it were really the case that the house were actually saying we're going to deny Triple M her seat because she's just a Republican and the vote were too close. If you guys should prove that, well, that would not really go to the election's returns and qualifications. Uh, And the court has said in that case, there might be judicial review. But as long as the House just on its face appears to be saying, well, that election in Iowa was too close and we think that the state misjudged it and we would apply a different rule. Then under Article 1, Section 5, the House is allowed to reject the seating of a new member. Richard
0: there are complications here the first one is it doesn't tell you by what vote this can take place it simply says that they're the judge i don't think that john is correct to suggest that there's any form of judicial review in this again one has to sort of look at the constitution from the way in which it was drafted in 1787 not the way in which judicial review was superimposed arguably in madison marbury v madison in 1803 and if you don't have a generalized system of judicial review uh, reading the language and it's natural way is going to be the most effective way to do it. Uh, the thing, of course, is extremely dangerous because suppose what you do is you have a situation in which you have a majority in party A by five votes. And what they decide to do is to vote out successfully each and every other member of the opposition and have a unanimous house. Is the only sanction going to be political or they going to be some other form of redress? And I think, you know, this shows what the American Constitution is about. Uh, you put these provisions in, they sound perfectly sensible in the ordinary case. And then when you start pushing it to the extreme, you say, no, this can't be right. And then you look for some countervailing legal doctrine that stops it, and you can find that. So so much of what the Constitution says and does depends upon an implicit sense of comedy and, and, and shared relationships. And one of the things that Nancy Pelosi is expert at is essentially breaking all of those particular norms um, and then deciding that she's going to have a new vote. She's going to claim it's a kind of a trial. Uh, the 3M lady comes in and she announces that these 40 votes should be counted. Uh, there may be 40 votes on the other side that weren't counted. Why the House should prefer its partisan decision decision to the decision of the Iowa courts and review boards that decided it is a deep, dark mystery. But there's actually some uh, somewhat scattered prose by uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi who announced that she could do it on her own initiative as one person. I have the right to see people or not see people. That clearly has to be wrong. Uh, so I think that what the basic situation is they can do it. Uh, they're going to have to pay a fairly high political price. And the worrisome situation is suppose they wanted to do it even when they thought that the outcome was clear. Uh, that is, could the House come together and start to say, yes, well, we know that the Republican won by 100,000 votes, but we prefer to have a Democrat. We're the judge of qualifications. There's nothing which says that majority has to rule. Uh, so long as we think our party has a substantial fare of the vote, we're going to give it. The, the bias is going to be absolutely crazy, and yet there doesn't seem to be any due process situation that deals with it. So I certainly think that the, the Democrats should not go down this road, uh, taking selective bits and pieces of evidence done before a partisan body. But they've done so many things lately which seem to be pushing the limits on such things as executive orders. It may well be that they're going to actually try this one too. I would hope they have to pay for this at the polls. Uh, nobody knows these days who's going to have to pay for what, uh, given the fluidity of the political situation.
1: And voting is very much the issue of the day right now. I mean, you've got these pieces of legislation moving in states across the country. They're especially controversial in legislative that are controlled by Republicans. We just had one pass and get signed into law in Georgia, which there's a lot of hysteria about in the media today, the day that we're recording. At the same time, you've got Democrats on Capitol Hill pushing HR1 and S1, which is the Senate companion, which would, would really redefine the relationship between the federal government and the states when it comes to the way that the that elections are conducted. Um John, I will I will start with you on this. The the Democrats are clearly sort of winning the messaging side of this war, which is to say that you you hear their their message loud and clear. And their message is that democracy itself is at stake if a thing like HR one doesn't get Passed into law, and democracy itself is at stake if these initiatives in Republican legislatures don't get blocked, obviously, there's a lot of variance between what's in those various pieces of legislation at the state level. but that broad characterization i mean break that down for us in real world real world terms. what's actually at stake here?
2: I mean the problem is that uh, these uh democratic groups want to sacrifice the constitution on the altar of democracy uh in two ways first. What the states have done so far in talking about the Georgia law seems perfectly constitutional to me. I mean, the main change in the Georgia law is to require a driver's license or a social security number or state ID card in, or- in order to vote uh, and not just vote in person, but to vote uh, absentee instead of using signatures. You would think, as President Biden said, this is the return of Jim Eagle, whoever that poor guy. I think that guy's a used car salesman in Wilmington, <laughs> Delaware. It sounds like one. I'm pretty sure one of my cars said Eagle Motors on the back in the day. Uh,
0: when you were in Philadelphia, yes,
2: yeah, because I'm from Philly. Uh, you know, Wilmington is just like a minor suburb of Philadelphia. Delaware wouldn't even make for a, a, an interesting neighborhood of Philadelphia. I mean, just, <laughs> I mean the so the, the the vote, but the I, I can't believe. Uh, you know, Joe Biden would say that because the Supreme Court upheld voter ID 13 years ago in a case called Crawford versus Marion County, and it's interesting. The court said there not only did the court, and this is opinion written by that noted right-wing ideologue Justice John Paul Stevens, read the majority. The court said uh, the state has a clear interest in making sure it only counts legitimate votes. Voter ID is an obvious way to do that, and the court even said. Indiana, in that case, didn't even have to have any cases of voter fraud using fake IDs before it when it passed a law, because it said as so long as there was some cases in the country at large of people engaging in voter fraud by not having an ID, it makes sense for Indiana to for Indiana to have such a law, and the court wasn't going to question it. So on the one hand, you know these uh, promoters of you know demo- democracy above all would throw out the legitimate interests of the states to manage elections with the Supreme Court upheld. And then the other thing is they would also um, stretch or bend or even break the Constitution to expand the federal role over elections. So the, uh, the Constitution, again, has a provision in it. Article 1, Section 4, I think. Yep. The time, places, and manners of holding elections for senators and representatives uh, or up to the states, the state legislatures, but Congress can um, change them. So, uh, sure, the Congress can set the time, election day, it can set the place of an election. The question is, what does the word manner mean? So, H.R. 1 would try to engage in all kinds of uh, shenanigans based on that word manner. Here, And here's just one of many examples which might be problematic. So, some of the proposals are to allow former felons to vote. And uh until now, it has been up to the states to decide whether felons could vote or not. Now, people in Congress are saying, "Well, that's under the word manner." Well, I don't think that's quite right because uh, consider when so- some states wanted to lower the driving the voting age below from twenty one to eighteen and what did we do when we wanted to do that? Congress didn't pass a law under the manner provision it had to we had to have a constitutional amendment. Yeah. So it seems to me that H.R. 1, that's just the most obvious one that left out to me when I looked at it. H.R. 1, I think, would uh, violate the federal role under that clause beyond all recognition by just basically saying Congress can just run all federal elections under the word manner.
0: Which it cannot do. Um, I have a couple of observations. First of all, I think uh, we've become very promiscuous in saying that anything that we disagree with is a throwback to the Jim Crow era. Uh, what that does is it basically trivializes the enormous obstacles to voting that was put into place under Jim Crow where physical force was used. Could you imagine somebody in 1910 saying, I am now an inveterate racist and I wish to keep all blacks from voting? And the way I'm going to do that is to require them to prevent, to prevent a driver's license or a card." Um, Uh, you have to do that to get on an airplane. You have to do that to get into a hospital. You have to do that for all sorts of things. It's trivial to do that. The state gives you all sorts of ways to get this kind of public identification. And to say, for example, that you can use an affidavit as a substitute is just crazy. You have no idea who's supposed to authenticate that particular affidavit. Uh, You have no idea how it's to be filed, when it has to be prepared and all the rest of that stuff. This is simply an effort to allow illegal votes to come into the. System without any kind of, uh, supervision whatsoever. And it seems to me that given the intensity of preferences that we see in elections, the Democrats are making a calculation that most of the Republicans are going to be more upper class, more settled, more likely to sort of have identifiable residence, And so they're going to be less able to take advantage of this than the Democrats who have a very different kind of population, which is going to be more mobile and more uncertain in which it's located. So this is just, I think, pure partisanship. Um, in terms of the legal issues, John is, I think, half right. Not that he's wrong. What he's only talked about is the provision about time, place, and manner with respect to the elections for the House and the Senate. Um, If you actually look to the prisons on the the election of the president, there is no time, place, and manner restriction that Congress could override. It simply says that the legislatures are designed to pick the particular voters uh, who are going to establish the, going to participate in the Electoral College. We've obviously changed the Electoral College. It is no longer deliberative body, which was clearly intended back in 1787. Uh, but it's still a situation in which the state have exclusive control. Now, what's going on here is, I think, something we have to understand. When you talk about a Republican form of government, uh, they do not mean a popular democracy in which more votes win. And so what they did in the original constitution is they had three different ways to choose members of the three different bodies. The president was chosen by this electoral deliberative body, and now not a deliberative deliberative body. The Senate was directly elected by the state legislatures, not by the public at large. And the House of Representatives was elected by a kind of general popular vote taking into account the uh, branch of government, which under state law had the most liberal eligibility requirements going on. Uh, So there was no effort whatsoever to create this uniform standard. And so long as the provision in section uh, in Article 2 stands, everything that is said about presidential elections has to be flat out unconstitutional. And John is surely right to say that a manner of conducting a letter does not deal with the question of who is eligible to vote. And so, for example, Congress could not decide, uh, for example, if the states did not want to allow women to vote back in 1910, that the manner of election meant that women had to participate. That's why we had the 19th Amendment. Uh, In addition, this statute has some really dubious provisions that restrict campaign speech and all the rest of it, so that even the um, ACLU is uneasy about some portions of what's going on here. Uh, This thing will not survive in its current form. If it gets to the Supreme Court, massive amounts of it will be struck down under relatively conventional jurisprudence. Uh, But in the meantime, what happens is it degrades the public discourse because it now means that anytime you're anti-democratic, it turns out you're pro-Jim Crow. And I think that one has to have very strong pushback. That's a kind of shameful set of allegations to bring against perfectly standard requirements that have been used in places north, south and east and west for a very long period of time. And to tar with that particular brush is really, I think, to inflame unnecessarily the political debate. And on this one, at least, I think the Democrats have to bear all the blame, including the rather lame remarks by President Biden, uh, basically supporting this Jim Crow characterization. The man could barely speak, it seems to me, when he's in public. And when he did speak, he said all the wrong things.
1: I have a fun piece of trivia for you guys. Because you mentioned the women voting uh, issue, Richard, Wyoming,
0: 1869,
1: Wyoming's nickname to this day is the equality state, because they were the the first um, first jurisdiction to allow women to vote. They did that when they were a territory. And Congress forced them to drop the provision as a condition of statehood.
0: Did it really? That I did not know. The the provision was put in place in order to induce women to come out into the territories in order to set up a viable marriage market.
1: Yeah, they actually Uh, actually forced it out in order to get Wyoming into the union. Uh, Let me turn you guys to something else that, again, um, radiating anyway from from Capitol Hill. It's this really interesting case. So we've just had this nearly $2 trillion bout of stimulus spending, ostensibly COVID-related, although in a lot of cases, you got to squint to see the connection. This is the this is the opening gun from the Biden administration. And, and within this, there is this $350 billion pot of money, which is for states and counties and cities that have had financial hardships because of the pandemic. Now, there are a lot of jurisdictions that actually haven't had that tough of a time financially. Some of them are in better shape than they were pre-COVID, In fact, it's actually a lot of the no income tax states, places like Florida or Texas that have been hit hard because they're disproportionately reliant, of course, on the sales tax. But there was a provision in this legislation that said the congressional legislation that said even if you were one of those states whose revenue hasn't taken much of a hit, that you could not use this money to reduce taxes and more to the point that you could not do so either directly or indirectly, which money being fungible raises the prospect that you just couldn't cut taxes. Ohio has already filed suit on this, saying that this is the federal government, specifically Treasury here, going well beyond their proper constitutional limits. Richard, what's your read on this? How do you think this will fare in
0: court? I I think they're going to win. This is the same problem that we have associated with the doctrine of unconstitutional condition. And you could recall that John and I had a debate uh, some time ago about the Medicaid expansion. Or med- in which it was turned out to say that if you wish to get the um, new mon- the old monies, you have to keep it, you have to take the new monies under the term that we're given. And the Supreme Court, by a seven to two majority, called this a gun at the head. What they really meant about this is that the state has uh, essentially monopoly powers. It can use those powers to advance some kind of an efficiency objective, which nobody's going to oppose, or it could do so in order to change the internal operations of the state constitution. And that's exactly what's happening when you start to tell a state that it can or cannot erase its kinds of taxes. So uh, my sense is that this particular provision will prevail. To give you the most famous case about this is a famous case called Hammer and Dagenhardt, in which the question was whether or not you could tell people uh, that they can only ship their goods into interstate commerce if they decided that they were not going to use child labor in the preparation of those goods, Or in any other goods made by that firm. And then they imposed a tax upon you if you didn't meet that condition, which was issued not related to the value of the product sold, but 10% of the gross profits of that particular firm. And a 5 4 majority of the Supreme Court struck this thing down, saying this was tantamount to trying to impose direct regulation on state manufacturing, which in 1918 was not subject to federal power. It was an effort essentially to change the balance between federal and state government. There's a case called Doldigan, South Dakota, in which Justice O'Connor and Justice Brennan in various different ways made exactly the same point about a kind of provision which says that if you uh, want to get all of your highway monies and not sacrifice 5% of it, uh, you have to raise the drinking age to 21. I think this is a very important set of provisions that you cannot use federal spending power. You cannot raise money in order to change the distribution of powers between the state and the federal government. The last example I'll give of this was a very early one is somebody said in the state says, well, if you want to come and do business in our state, you have to give up the right to go in federal court under diversity jurisdiction. And it's clearly worth more to you to have business in diversity jurisdiction. But the Supreme Court was absolutely no hesitation whatsoever is this is a structural protection given to out-of-state people. And you cannot tell them when they come in, they have to forfeit it. So you strike it down. And I think that principle is going to dominate in this particular case
1: john are you as confident as richard that this will get smacked down in court it's interesting i think it'll lose in court too ultimately but that's
2: really because of president trump's new appointments to the court uh the
0: super realist there john what about the merits
2: oh well
0: the merits. Is, this is uh, <laughs> uh so you, do you remember how you scoffed <laughs> no. at me when i said that the obamacare stuff was going to fail on the medicaid extension do you remember? He will not let this go. How often does Richard do bring this up? I will never let it go. I was, I was humiliated. Yeah, because the court had never struck down a spending condition before.
2: I, I, it's true. I was wrong. I still don't. I mean, I think the spending clause is limited, but the court has never said the spending is limit, The clause was limited, and that was the first time. Now, I think this is uh, weaker constitutionally than the Obamacare restriction because. In this case, the spending condition doesn 't really seem that limited at all uh, i li- 'm sorry linked at all to what the federal money is for. so uh, the way to think of it is the before the Obamacare case, there was a case called uh, involving dole, uh, and it was about speed limits. And it was South Dakota versus Dole. And I, I was all on South Dakota's side. I believe it's every American's God-given right to drive at least 100 miles per hour on any interstate highway. And so but the, the Congress, states can't do it. John, yeah, John, John. The Congress John. You're going otherwise. over the top, guy. The Congress brought otherwise. So they said everybody who takes federal funds has to change the uh, – drink. well, this was this case was the drinking age. But later they also did it for speed limits, which was just terrible, terrible. And so the court – Initially upheld it and said, Yeah, that's a fine use of the spending doctrine, spending clause. But the Justice O'Connor there introduced this idea of a nexus. So there has to be some reasonable relationship between the condition that Congress inputs puts on the funds themselves. So they have to be related in some way. She didn't really explain what that relationship was. This was a classic O'Connor test, but it seems to me when the government says, okay, if you take funds from us, You can't cut taxes. There's no rational nexus. There's no subject matter that's linked between the two. And that's even before you get to then the next step of a case like the Obamacare case, where then you just say, yeah, the conditions are related, but then the condition is just too much. There's too much money at stake. And so no state can say no. I think this is an interesting example of a law that fails the first first step, which is, is there a reasonable nexus between the condition uh, and the money? But I, I, totally accept it. Richard is right. I personally did <laughs> not think the court would strike down a spending clause restriction back in um, the Sibelius case in 2012 because they had never had, had never done so before. I was amazed. I was happy about. I was happy to be surprised. But you're right, Richard. For those,
0: uh, John. Of retribution comes late, but it is still pleasant beyond all compare. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I think, in effect, that the logic of the unconstitutional conditions doctrine is independent of the federal power that's involved. Um, when I wrote my book, Bargaining with the State, I called it like Banquo's ghost. Wherever you go there, you will find it. And in fact, the whole theory of that book was that no matter what substantive right you look to, conditions could always be attached, and these conditions could always be an abuse of monopoly power. And so that applies to the structural provisions and also to the taxing provisions, to so the commerce cause Provision and to the individual rights conditions. So, for example, Nolan, which is the case which said that if you wish to build your house at above the level that it now is, you have to give us a lateral easement in front of your porch for people to go on. And Justice Scalia struck it down. He didn't understand the logic of unconstitutional conditions. Of course, he didn't believe that monopoly power could be abused. uh, But what he did write is he said, well, you know, this thing's kind of un American. It's like shouting fire in a crowded theater and so forth. Uh, He didn't get the analysis right, but he the intuitions right. And our job as an academic is to, I think, formalize the doctrine of unconstitutional condition as an analysis of how it is monopoly power should be structured, taking as its cue the antitrust laws that are used for similar arrangements in private areas.
2: So here's where Richard and I might disagree because I do, and I think the court would agree, there is a a legitimate scope for Congress to place conditions on federal funding. Surely, I I mean, I, I see the uh, sort law and e- economics attractiveness of your position, but that's not the way the court
0: thinks about it. That is certainly but, the case, alas. And, and your, alas and
2: your alas. test would lead, I think, to far more uh, judicial activism, uh, wrong, activism. Wrong, judicial intervention and striking down many more uh, conditions than is currently the case. And so, I, I not think not. the court. Very. I mean, I think that's got to be true if you use this monopoly theory.
0: Well, John, I mean, the question is not whether they're more, but whether they're going to be abusively more. And and so, for example, let me give you a kind of a case that – Which shows you how it works. Suppose you want to go into the state of Massachusetts and to drive, and the state passes a law which says if you drive on our highways, you consent to be sued in the state of Massachusetts for any accident that arises out of a collision that takes place there. That's clearly an efficiency provision because what you're trying to do is to make sure that people don't have to go hither and yon in order to be able to find proper jurisdiction over defendants. But now, suppose you say you want to enter into the state of Massachusetts, if you ever get a divorce, you have to litigate that in Massachusetts court. That's clearly going to be an excess and abuse, unrelated and so forth. And indeed, if 50 states impose that condition, it would be nobody could ever get divorced because they have to do it in 50 separate states. But if 50 states impose a rule which says that you have to litigate your accident in the state in which it's occurred, uh, that's going to be a perfectly coherent position. And so I do think, in effect, that you can find lots of cases which everybody agrees to be utterly inappropriate, and my test will capture them. And so that means that you don't have to waive your Fourth rights in order to go on the public highways. You don't have to agree to contribute to a political party to use the public highways and so forth, because those are all diversions and they're not related to making the operation of the highways safer than they would otherwise be. And so I agree with you it would be somewhat broader. Uh, but for example, you know, uh, government gives out millions and billions of dollars worth of grants for medical research. I think it's perfectly appropriate to say that the grants in question have to be spent for the purposes to which they're devoted. Or to say in diadole you have to allow people to patent their findings if they so want, which is an important statute, um, or to put them in the public domain. So I don't think it's going to lead to any kind of abuse. And in fact, in that book I wrote on bargaining with the state, um, half the conditions seem to come out fine. And one of the reasons I was reasonably comfortable with this theory is I didn't see any results that sort of stuck in the craw after you announced them. So the challenge to you is to find a case that my case would allow that you would find horrible. Um, and indefensible and could persuade the vast bulk of reasonable people, i.e. those who are like you, uh, to agree with it. That's the <laughs> test. And I, I don't think that those cases are going to be available. And of course, we know if this is the same Congress that's playing all sorts of games with everything else that's going on. Uh, one of the things that's so tragic about the uh, democratic control over the House at this particular point is they get no presumption of legitimacy with respect to anything that they do today, which is kind of scary.
1: I want to get you guys to weigh in on this rare occasion where a dissent not from the Supreme Court gets a lot of attention. In this case, it was one that came off the D.C. Circuit from Lawrence Silberman. This was in a libel case. The case itself did not excite that much interest. It was about a couple of Liberian officials who said that a report by a human rights group implied incorrectly that they had taken bribes. But the reason this got so much attention is that Judge Silberman's dissent came out swinging against the defamation standards under New York Times v. Sullivan from the 60s, the major precedent here? Let me read you a little bit of what he wrote. Justice Thomas has already persuasively demonstrated that New York Times was a policy driven decision masquerading as constitutional law. The holding has no relation to the text, history, or structure of the Constitution, and it baldly constitutionalized an area of law refined over centuries of common law adjudication okay john former journalist and clarence thomas clerk that you are okay can you explain for us uh, what the standards established by new york times v sullivan are and and why judge silberman takes some exception to them and, and whether you think he's right
2: oh troy you have not done your research because i'm a trifecta not only was i former journalist not only did i clerk for justice thomas i also clerked for judge silberman too (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, <laughs> three for three yeah i i mean i you know what i did know that i don't know why I <laughs> so and i don't think so it reveals a slow pitch for you i don't think it reveals uh uh you know clerk judge confidences to say that um probably the most unpopular view i held in both both clerkships was that i was a great defender of the media to uh both of them <laughs> <laughs> see uh but you know, I'm a contrarian like Richard. I just if people agree with me when I when you know all the time something is not right. <laughs> so I um so I think there's uh you know I would I would concur in part and dissent in part with uh, Judge Silverman. The I would agree with him that New York Times versus Sullivan is just wholly created. And I think anyone who teaches the First Amendment cases has to admit that, whether you agree with New York Times versus Sullivan or not. I mean, this absence of malice standard for a public, figure. right, the test is uh, if a publication says something uh, turns out to be untrue about what's qu- called, quote, unquote, a public figure. Although in Sullivan, it was a government official. Later, the court expanded to include public course, figures. figures. Yeah, those, uh, you know, Richard, uh, of course, can be maligned with impunity now, as, as the New York Times has done with him several times, both in writing and in
1: photography. As we um, do here every month.
0: Oh no, no, Troy, <laughs> and then, yours so
2: is
1: that,
0: benevolent.
2: <laughs> so then, then the standard is even if what you say is false or misleading, if you um, uh, if you had no if you had no malice, basically, if you could even have been slightly reckless and not cared and didn't even double check, you're still not liable. It's almost that like you have to intentionally have printed something false, knowingly printed something false where you could be sued for defamation of libel and not, and, uh, not be protected by free speech. Uh, I think Justice Thomas is right. I think Judge Sim- Silverman is right. That was not present in the law. It was certainly not present in 1791 when the First Amendment was enacted. It was not, the standard was not present in um, the Reconstruction period when the 14th Amendment was enacted, which applied the free speech clause to the states. Uh, that doesn't tell you what the standard should be. And so where I'm a little uncomfortable is leaving it up to the common law to decide what the scope of our ah, constitutional rights should on you. <laughs> I knew this, yeah, I was waiting for the oh. end, the very end. So that's, that's right. Then the second, this, the second point, and this is something I'm just, I'm not saying I'm dissenting, but the point where I, I'm not sure. Uh, so I can see why Judge Silberman went on to, uh, attack the media and the academy. I mean, he got everybody in there. Attack the
1: media. Uh, there are specific academies. references in there. He calls, I think, the New York Times and the Washington Post yeah. Democratic Party broadsheets. Yeah, he,
2: he accuses them of being monolithic and not just ideologically monolithic, but partisan, But partisan, in fact, not yes. just
1: liberal. Here's how deep in the weeds he got in. <laughs> he called out the Miami Herald. I mean, that's, a, that's a deep cut. Yes.
2: <laughs> okay. Miami has a newspaper still. Yeah. Anyway, so that's the part where I, I would have written an opinion differently. I understand Judge Silberman is saying, look, the if New York Times versus Sullivan is all about policy and the court's just making up the rules and we should take into account the, the changed circumstances because that's we're just making policy now. Whereas I would um, – I don't know whether – It's necessary. And this is where I, I, because that's a factual question, whether newspapers and the uh, TV channels are, in fact, Republican or Democrat. I wouldn't have the constitutional law, you know, I wouldn't have our free speech protections and their scope hinge on what the factual On what the facts of the media landscape are, even though I hazard to guess it would, and I think probably most would say what Judge Silberman said about the politics of the media and politics of universities is true. Mm
0: Look, um, I disagree in some sense with what Justice Silverman said. What? Yes, I don't think that this was a political decision. I think it was a bad legal decision. Let me see if I could explain uh, what was going on. New York Times against Sullivan is very heavily dependent upon uh, the factual organization of the case. Uh, The Times sold maybe a couple dozen copies of the Sunday newspaper in the state of Alabama, and they contained the ad... um, talking about the protest against uh, various white segregationist institutions under the headline, Heed Their Rising Voices, signed by very distinguished members of the Civil Rights Movement. And for the publication of this, Sullivan said it referred to me when it just referred to the police. Nobody would have known his name if they had done it. And then what it had said was that the amount of damages that was involved in this particular case was $500,000 of general damages without proof of any loss, notwithstanding the fact that Sullivan had actually made himself into a celebrity inside the state. Uh, the uh, defendant, New York Times, had tried to remove the case into federal court, but they had joined a local defendant so they couldn't get an honest jury. Bull Connor and others were waiting in the wings to bring similar suits. And what Justice Brennan was faced with was the decision of the Alabama Supreme Court, uh, which mangled, I think, standard defamation law. And he was determined, as Justice Brennan was often determined, to save the New York Times. Uh, Now, he could have done this in a number of ways, and the first of them necessarily involved uh, constitutionalizing the First Amendment, which was something that was not perfectly clear at the time. There was a case called Near Against Minnesota, which said that libel is outside the protection of the First Amendment, a very overbroad statement that he didn't even know what it meant. And Brennan said, I can't live with this, because he wanted to protect the times. But what he did is he went over the top. Now, what he should have said was two things. One is that the Damage award is utterly unsupportable. General damages when there's no particular sign of any inconvenience that you suffer in a community has to be proportionate to, circu- to circulation. So it should not be $500,000. It should be $50 or less. And then says, Oh, concerning is not really what's going on here. There were so many people referred to in this statement that the treated as singling him out for special opprobrium is wrong. So you fail on those two grounds. But what he then did is he said there was a third test called the actual malice test. This test had actually been involved and adopted in several cases, most notably in Kansas, roughly around the turn of the century. But the dominant view was actually developed in a case called Helm against the New York Post, which was put out there by Justice Tapp when he was a judge on the um, Sixth Circuit, in which he said, the way I think about these Democrat, these cases is as follows. If, in fact, what you do is you make a false statement, to fact, them, uh, then you could be held strictly liable for it. But if you fa- present a factual predicate, um, which makes perfectly good sense, uh, then in effect, what you can do is you can go and say the rest of what you want as an opinion because people can now check the facts against your opinion and see what's right or wrong. And that was a test devoted by a guy named Van Vechten Vieter in about 1910 in the Columbia Law Review. So you get all of this stuff. And what Brennan could have simply said is in this case, you have no factual predicate. Now you're not doing anything in terms of the ch- the charges on the falsehood that really mattered. Uh, so, what happens is if you look at this particular thing, uh, you're not going to be able to win for all the other reasons I said. What he did in the second, he said, look, I'm going to assume that everything here is actually good. I'm going to introduce this actual malice test. And the actual malice test meant that you have to have knowledge of falsehood or reckless disregard of the truth. And the great sin of that particular test is that the statement could be wrong beyond all belief cause an enormous amount of damage. And nowhere else in the world do you have to prove essentially knowing falsehood to get somebody. Generally speaking, it's usually a strict liability test as it always was in defamation. And he could have kept that particular rule and should have kept that particular rule. Uh, So that what has happened in the years since New York Times against Sullivan, people get their lives absolutely shattered by false statements in the newspaper. They lose political elections. They lose jobs in important firms. They have their marriages break up. And what the newspaper says, well, we didn't mean to do him any harm, so therefore we've destroyed him. No big deal. And that's what I think people are against, and so I think, in effect, the correct legal standard is that when you injure somebody, uh the existence of malice in any of its various forms should determine punitive damages, but it should not determine two other things: One of them is whether you issue a prompt apology and correction with the same vigor and apparent clarity that you did the wrongful statement because that would help to do it, or you give somebody damages, and you probably want both of those things and what the New York Times did. Is it prevented both of them? So there was an effort that was made by several people to say, look, what we really want in these cases is just a correction, and it's not going to cost them any money. And the newspapers have always fought this within an inch of their lives, and their reason is so sardonic, it's kind of ironic to put it mildly. They said, well, we can't make corrections of wrong statements because that will hurt our reputation." That's the entire point. You've hurt somebody else's reputation. If you've done that, your reputation should suffer because you've behaved improperly. So I think, in effect, New York Times is really quite wrong on the actual malice standard. Um, but I think that Justice Silberman would have done better by everybody if he had spent more time going into the mechanics of the case and going back to the historical evolution of defamation law rather than calling it a political decision. Uh, but it certainly has had very, very bad consequences. And I wrote an article on this in 19 19- 1986 was New York Times against Solomon wrong. And I said it was wrong then, even before I knew you, John. In fact, were you there to what? be known in 1986? <laughs> I, was, I, to was be still, known?
2: I was still nose deep in my Mark Engels reader. By well, I, I'm <laughs> sure you were, but, uh, but I mean... Can, you know, I make, can I make two points? One, two, yeah, one, I'm done. One, one point about Richard and one point about Judge So, Richard is so poetic. He is verging on the Lewis Farrakhan. Did you notice he said... It was so sardonic, it was ironic. I
0: got, we got to put that on a t shirt or something. Was, You've got me down. Yes, I, I'm the, trying to make myself. I'm a hip guy.
2: And then the, here's a, just, I think, actually, I think Troy might be interested in this. When I read that opinion by Judge Silverman, I actually, you know, the, putting aside the law, one thing that really struck me was um, how conservatism has changed. I mean, Judge Silverman is a yes. long time figure, major figure in conservative law and politics, and he's become quite the populist. He is attacking the main institutions of American life, the government, universities, the media. You know, conservatives used to be in favor of institutions, in favor of defending them against, right, the progressives who wanted to overthrow all the norms and standards and revolutionize everything. And will notice, I think this is just, I'm not criticizing him, this, but I just, I noticed this change. Conservatives and their attitude towards institutions. Now we're tending a lot of conservatives now anti-institution and are becoming. John, I I, don't
0: think that's right. Richard
2: included. Richard included. I don't don't
0: think they're anti-institutions as such. I think they're anti-bad behaviors by a set of institutions that have done things that no sensible institution has ever done before. I mean, let's put aside the question of whether there's legal remedy against the big tech companies when they put this out, or or against the whole type of situation in which you get this nonstop defamation taking place of people, um, uh, you should at the very least say when you start having Twitter and all these other people banning, canceling, and abusing people. When I listen to what comes out of the Democratic Party calling everybody who disagrees with them a Jim Crow specialist and so forth, I think they should be denounced under these things. Not because they're
2: big, but because they yeah. behave badly. Yeah, but here's, that's another great example. Richard, because, and actually, I think Silberman has a footnote in his opinion about this, just raising his question. But Right, conservatives used to believe in private property, and if you own private property, you can kick the whoever hell off your front yard. Nobody can speak but on your but never for common carriers. But that's what I mean. Conservatives are now leading the charge in favor of pro-regulation of big... Again, my point is just like conservatism is becoming populist now, economic populist and politically populist.
0: I think they're populist on both sides. They're populist on both sides, John, the left. I mean, the problem about big tech is in this situation. On Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, what happens to people like Amy Klobuchar, Tim Wu, Alina Khan say, you guys have got huge monopoly power. You're absolutely terrible. And then they attack them for all the things that they do well providing good services at low price. But when it comes to the political stuff, the uh, press is absolutely arm and leg with the Democratic Party on cancel culture, banning Trump, uh, having a definition of disinformation which includes anything that I have the thing that you disagree with, and so there's a complete schizophrenia going on. And when you start looking at what people say, I mean, they get appalled. I mean, look, I I think the Zeus family has allowed the trustees not to put these books out. But every time they take something off the market, they denounce it as being racist and sexist or worse. And, And we have to have a break from that. I mean, I open up the New York Times every day and I say to myself, what's the count going to be on allegations of sexism or racism in some industry or activity? And it's every day. And you get kind of sick and tired of all of this stuff, because some of the things when you actually know about it uh, seem to be false. And uh, so, you know, you, you look at all these kinds of things, what happened to parlor and other kinds of situations, you say, uh, this is just not the way in which the, the world ought to operate. And so I am, I mean, I think big tech, I think the big banks on this stuff, the corporate responsibility movement that they start to have, these things are outrageous, Kinds of behavior, and if they're done by big stupid people, they should be attacked the same way if they're done by small stupid people, and they are stupid. I mean,
2: yeah. I, my only point is that I don't. The answer is not <laughs> a legal regulation. In my mind, It's let the market go to
0: work. Well, and- I'm saying, well, that's yeah. not true with respect to defamation, and it's not true with respect to common carriers. Common carriers, since the. Sir Matthew Hale. I, I, I agree with you, Rich.
2: I mean, I, I, I bet in the end the law will consider these guys to be common carriers. I'm not sure whether that's the right neither am But that's the way it's gonna happen. I, I think that's the way it'll go because it's the
1: easiest analogy. While we're talking about people whose reputations are under fire, I mean we're we're running out of time, but I can't keep you guys from getting to this topic. The Sydney Powell the lawyer who is working with Donald Trump oh, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> has has made an interesting <laughs> choice. So we mentioned on the last episode that she's been hit with a $1.3 billion defamation suit by Dominion Voting Systems because of her allegations that they had rigged the election. She has asked to have that suit dismissed partially on the grounds that, and I quote, reasonable people would not accept such statements as fact, but view them only as claims that await testing by the courts through the adversary process. Close quote. Hang know. on. I'll start. <laughs> There's two things I, I want to know here. One is this as much of a legal hail Mary as it sounds. And two, is this a dangerous strategy for her? Because to this layman, it seems like making the centerpiece of your argu- your argument Hey, remember that thing about the end of democracy as we know it? Just joking. That seems like it could backfire. It should. Backfire. I, I still want
2: to know where the Kraken is. Is there really a Kraken or not a Kraken? <laughs> should she not have to pay damages because she made up this Kraken creature? I mean, <laughs> but, but, look, look. If they, the problem with the lawsuit, I, it seems to me against her. Although I wouldn't. I think she's not using the. She's not defending herself on the right grounds. Is. People make all kinds of accusations in court as part of lawsuits, and they're not subject to defamation. I mean, the government may prosecute someone and say you you killed somebody, and it turns out that they and didn't. That's not considered defamation. So I I think her better defense is to say, look, what I was I was a lawyer, I had a client, and I was making claims in court on behalf of my client. And the free speech protects that. You, I mean, can't be sued for defamation about what I say in court as part of defending my client. But that, instead, to say, these are, well, what I'm saying is not really factually true. It's just supposition. I, that's, I think that's a dangerous path to go down. And then she could well, but I, I just don't understand why she would even argue it that way.
0: Well, she may have made statements out of court. Well, that's changing. the problem. Yeah. Are they or are some of them essentially collateral and independent? Uh, the other point that she could raise is Dominion hasn't suffered a single loss of sales in virtue of what had happened. Uh, so that general damages are going to be very weak. And the problem about one point three billion dollars is it's probably too large by a factor of a thousand. Or more, um, I think the damage issues, but nobody wants to argue damage issues because they're afraid if they can see liability, everything is going to be thrown very heavily against them. I think she kind of overplayed her hand. She was a very skillful criminal defense lawyer, but she wasn't an election lawyer. And you know, when you go into new areas with new terrain, you could make various kinds of mistakes. Um, I think the whole legal system has become very much overheated. I think there are all sorts of exaggerated claims. Um, I have lost huge amounts of faith in our large institutions, our corporations, our banks, our insurance companies, our educational system, because I think they've all become woke and they are basically willing to pile on helpless small individuals. I think, you know, uh, it's the celebration of George Floyd is yet another illustration of a man who probably died of fentanyl poisoning. At least you ought to find that out before you decide to basically accuse everybody in the police force of being racist. These charges, I think, are really very corrosive and they are now being carried to a a pitch. Donald Trump said a lot of stupid things in his life and a lot of lies. But these are much more serious because Trump's lies were designed to uh, exaggerate, to make them feel good, to uh, basically get people outraged. But when these lies start coming back and putting people into jail and getting them criminal convictions and things of that sort, then they are much more dangerous than this. And you know, saying that the HR one is a Jim Crow piece of legislation, or rather the opposition to it is Jim Crow, that's that's a much more vicious and much more dangerous thing to say than saying I had the largest crowd of any presidential inauguration ever when everybody knows that you didn't
1: let me attempt to take that eulogy for our institutions and maybe our country and, <laughs> eulogy and, and spin it elegy yes and spin it yes and, and spin it into uh maybe something positive here at the end apart from our annual listener question shows we don't often do listener mail but we got to know John did from a, a young aspiring lawyer who's very complimentary of the two of you knowing the both of you personally i'd say excessively so and I'm not going to use his name because we didn't ask permission, but he asked this question. And it's an interesting one. He says, I am at a pivotal moment in my life where I have to decide what it is that I want to do. And I was hoping that I could receive from gu- some guidance from people that I really look up to. I've been considering joining the Air Force to become a JAG and hopefully create meaningful change while preserving the Constitution. I would. Truly appreciate the opportunity to hear from both of you. So I I want you guys to answer this question, but I also want you to expand upon it a little bit. It's clear from this young man's note, uh, especially if you read it in full, that he is one of these people who is in law school because he loves the law. There's some romantic attachment there. This is not someone who's just hell bent on making a lot of money by being in a white shoe firm.
2: Well, he, didn't, he clearly didn't go to the right law school where, the, where our purpose is to beat the hell out of them until they <laughs> do that. <anymore. laughs> well,
1: for, oh, I mean, for people like this, where monetizing <laughs> the degree is not the first priority, what's the kind of advice you tend to give them about careers to pursue?
0: Well, I would say this I actually have taught military law. Um, about five years ago. And I did it because I thought it was important to figure out how a very different kind of um, judicial system operates, command and control economy and so forth. And I was just wildly impressed at how well I think that that particular body law was organized. And I think that the service in the JAG, whether you become a plaintiff or a defendant's lawyer, really doesn't matter in that context, is something to do. I also am very much in favor of lawyers going into public service, because one of the things they can do is they could not only prosecute the guilty, but they can protect the innocent because we have all too much of this kind of thing happening today of showboat prosecution. So public service is extremely important. And the last thing you want to do is to leave it to those people who think that every ordinary sentiment that you see, a traditional sentiment society is illegitimate or racist. Uh, Having some people in government who actually don't buy that particular line is an enormous protection for the civil liberties of us all. John,
2: I think I've mentioned this before. There's this great quote. I think it was by Edward Bennett Williams, one of the great trial lawyers of the 20th century who went on to found Williams and Connolly, one of the great trial firms in the country. And he had a case in the military justice system. And I think he said, it might be apocryphal, but he's reported to have said that if he had an innocent client, he would want to be tried in a military court. If he had a guilty client, he'd want to be tried in a civilian court. And that was uh you know his testament, I think to the accuracy of military trials uh compared to you know civilian trials well, you know, civilian trials are i think much more weighted heavily as Richard was just pointing out towards the rights of the uh defendant, even if though they may not be innocent so i in terms of the career choice i I'm off with richard i mean i think the the financial attractions of the private sector are enormous, and it's hard for law, young law idealistic law students to turn them down when you, I think your first year salary after law school can be $190,000 to $200,000 a year, and you could pay off all your student debt in two or three years easily. So, uh, but I think, uh, I I agree with him. I I think I agree with Richard. I think if if the students have the opportunity to go into public service of any kind, whether it's the military, the federal government, state and local level, I think that they will uh, find their work far more rewarding. And important, uh, even though they might be getting paid one-tenth what their classmates get paid in the end.
0: And you could also work for think tanks and so forth. I have no objection for people working in firms. but I think is so important under these circumstances is that we have to change the nature of the public discourse so that every time you walk into a room, you're not met with a charge that X, Y, and Z is a result of structural racism. Uh, it becomes tedious and it becomes dangerous. I mean, it belittles. I mean, I'm old enough and you guys are not to remember what it was like in the United States in the 1950s. And I certainly heard as a boy, a lot of stories of going on what happened in the North and more in the South in the 1930s and 40s. Nothing remotely like that happens today. And so what you do is you get these absolutely over-the-top charges done at a time that completely denigrates the process that has happened. I have spoken before civil rights commissions, and this is the attitude that I take. Your job is not to find new violations that you could constantly agitate. Your job is to say that if you think that people have improved their behavior so that discrimination is not in evidence, you should say that and thank the people who have done it right. Uh, but when you hear the way in which people attack the police and the healthcare workers and everybody else in society, uh, I think in effect what happens is I regard this as group defamation, and it's group defamation which have very deleterious opposition. Uh, so speaking out, I think, is absolutely critical in all of these particular areas. Uh, but what you see now, if you read the New York Times and the Washington Post, is that you have the most besotted and corrupt government and private individuals in this world today. Every Everybody talks about structural racism, but nobody's an individual racist, I guess is what they believe. Because these are the same guys who are in charge of the very institutions that they trash. We cannot live in a society that has that. So I'm sorry for being so emotional, but I do think, in fact, it's extremely important that traditional caution, due process rights, and all the rest of that stuff be observed. And the reason you're seeing such a fierce reaction, the kind of populist reaction you have, is there a large number of people who know that the system is broken, and they're really very unsure what to do about it.
1: All right, fellas, that is the allotted time. Thanks as ever to the two of you, to our producer, Scott Immigrant, and to all of our wonderful listeners. Remember to do us a favor and rank the show on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we
2: advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.